This makes Bitcoin miners uniquely symbiotic with energy grids, serving as demand response partners. If energy is ever in short supply, people get priority over Bitcoin miners. However, when there is excess energy, it gets monetized. This symbiotic relationship leads to more energy abundance generally. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, your host, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got another great read coming at you today. Uh, this one is by Brandon Quittum. Brandon Quittum has uh, done the Mycelium series, which we have read in total from tar start to finish on this show. And this is also from the Bitcoin Times Volume 4, which I have tried to, in the past, make audio for as much of the Bitcoin Times as possible. And I think I did all of Volume 1 and, or Edition 1 and 2. I, I think I did most of three. I can't even remember now. Um, but I will have the link in the show notes so that you can dig into this. The Bitcoin Times is just an awesome publication and they have so many great things. There's a couple of Tomer Strolite uh, uh, pieces. Alex Fetsky's always writing stuff. Uh, Alan Farrington. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, Brandon Quittum here. Um, I think uh, I think Alex McShane has a piece. I can't even I can't even remember. There's a lot of contributors to the Bitcoin Times, so many that we've read in the past, and I, I highly recommend it. If you want to go to BitcoinAudible.com and just search the Bitcoin Times, a couple of my favorite pieces are honestly from this publication. It's a really good one. So anyway, um, we are reading today another piece from Brandon Quittum, and this is titled. Bitcoin is a pioneer species, and it's about the concept of, of how a certain technology, from, from the idea of ecology, from the framework of looking at Bitcoin and the, the economic, the, the civilization that it is, uh, it is placed within as, a, as an ecology, as an ecosystem for expanding life and productivity and economic activity and exactly how the incentives change when you have something that can survive, that can find value in a place and in under certain conditions that has never been possible before. And that is what Bitcoin mining and energy do together. That is how Bitcoin mining can find energy anywhere and everywhere that it's available and what that does to the incentives, the underlying incentives for that and how it behaves like this pioneer species, this spark of life that can live in the most barren of environments and begin the process of creating an ecosystem. And it's a fascinating idea and it hits all on the concepts around Bitcoin and wasting energy and, and really hits like the dynamics of the grid, but does so from a great analogy uh, that I think, as Brandon Quidham always does, uh, such a good job of kind of explaining it through the eyes of biology, I guess you could say, from, from looking at the natural world and 
what can we learn from the natural world to apply to Bitcoin and how, how can we better understand Bitcoin that way? So really quick, let's hit our sponsors before we jump into this piece. And we are starting with the company that has been automatically buying and automatically withdrawing Bitcoin to my keys for I don't even know how long now and buying all the way through this dip, which has just been amazing. Swan Bitcoin. Uh, these guys are the place to buy Bitcoin and set up your auto DCA. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy takes you right to my, my special page made for you guys. And then we've got the Bitbox O2, which is where you're going to keep it safe. I actually had to create uh, a whole bunch of new wallets recently, um, all derived from my Bitbox. I've been using it way more just because I've been having to move so much around with my uh, phone getting wiped out and uh, loving it even more. It is a great, secure, easy to use hardware wallet, the Bitbox O2, and you guys get a 5% discount. And then Bitcoin 2022 conference. This is right around the corner. This is going to happen in April. Don't forget to get your tickets 10% off with my code. Uh, all of this is available in the show notes. And then lastly, the fold card. Actually buying my iPhone data recovery, I got 3% back. And it was an expensive, <laughs> it was an expensive purchase. I'm very happy that I had the fold card so that I stacked a little Bitcoin at the same time. Discounts and goodies from all of our amazing sponsors. Check them out in the show notes. So now let's jump into today's amazing read and it's titled Bitcoin is a pioneer species exploring Bitcoin mining through the lens of ecology by Brandon Quittam. How does life colonize a desolate environment for the first time? Let's say a volcano erupts and wipes out all life on an island. Is this island destined for desolation? Fortunately not, thanks to quote pioneer species who colonize bare earth after a disturbance or when the environment is too harsh to allow for colonization by other species. Pioneer species are usually hardy plants and lichens with few soil requirements. They typically travel by sea or by air with wind-blown seeds or spores that serendipitously land on virgin land. They enjoy the competition-free environment, produce their own food through photosynthesis, and if successful, bootstrap a new ecosystem. After planting roots in a virgin ecosystem, the pioneer species slowly transforms their surroundings, making conditions suitable for more complex organisms to join the party. Before long, this once barren wasteland becomes an oasis of life. In the Bitcoin ecosystem, Miners are pioneer species uniquely capable of colonizing energy deserts anywhere within the hash horizon, which includes the North Pole, volcanoes, and even outer space. After forming symbiosis with energy producers, the ecosystem is positively transformed and attracts more sophisticated allies. The small disturbance of Bitcoin miners colonizing a new territory changes the local ecological incentives. Quote, Large streams from little fountains flow, tall oaks from little acorns grow. Think of Bitcoin miners as citadel seeds. They may be unassuming now, but given enough time, 
a simple mining operation can transform a barren wasteland into an oasis of human flourishing. Ecology as a Framework to Understand Bitcoin Ecologists often focus on disturbances, defined as, quote, temporary changes in environmental conditions that cause a pronounced change in an ecosystem. The goal is to predict how a system will respond to a disturbance, possibly caused by a change in incentives. In this article, we are going to explore Bitcoin mining through the lens of ecology. We'll examine how Bitcoin miners and the energy markets influence each other. As incentives shift in the system, we can start to theorize as to how the system might respond. From an ecology standpoint, life is all about harnessing energy. Energy, along with food, water, and shelter, are examples of limiting factors which prevent individual organisms, populations, or entire human civilizations from multiplying ad infinitum. For example, a herd of elk can only grow as large as their food supply, mostly grass, allows. Viewing history through a geological time scale, we can identify major breakthroughs in harnessing energy. Each served as an energetic inflection point throughout evolutionary history. Major Breakthroughs in Harnessing Energy The Oxygen Revolution, 3 billion years ago The first organisms, cyanobacteria, learned how to harness energy from the sun to produce food through photosynthesis. These organisms exhaled oxygen, which radically transformed their environment. This was the first example of ecology at work. The emergence of eukaryotes, 2.1 billion years ago. Complex life, including plants and animals, finally emerged. The leading theory is that the evolution occurred through endosymbiosis, in which one organism eats another and they merge into a singular organism. This new organism contains two organelles, one of which is mitochondria, the power plant of the cell. This happy little accident was a prerequisite to the Cambrian explosion. Homo sapiens, 300,000 years ago. Humans went from burning wood, biomass fuel, to domesticating animals for agriculture. Then, during the Industrial Revolution, we harnessed energy-dense coal, petroleum, and natural gas, hydrocarbons, enabling the steam engine. As our ability to harness energy improved, so did our tools and our quality of life. We had time for leisure, humans specialized, and commerce exploded. Each energetic advancement dramatically increased the carrying capacity of our species. Harnessing energy is required for humans to flourish. Just because we're familiar with a concept doesn't mean we actually understand it. Bitcoin, energy, electricity, and the complexity of their relationships are great examples of this. There's a popular narrative today that goes something like, we need to reduce our energy consumption, otherwise we will destroy our planet and everyone on it. Similarly, reporters criticize Bitcoin for 
wasting energy, which reveals how little they understand about energy markets and the value Bitcoin provides. To be fair, it's not easy to grasp. Bitcoin mining is everything you don't understand about energy combined with everything you don't understand about Bitcoin. Our ability to harness energy is a prerequisite for human flourishing. Energy has enabled humans to live anywhere on Earth without dying from heat, cold, or natural disasters. It powers our hospitals, enables transportation, and provides food security. Quote, There is no optimistic version of the future in which humanity does not use significantly more energy than it does today. From Bitcoin mining and the case for more energy. GDP per capita is directly correlated to energy consumption per capita. While not a perfect comparison, this chart wouldn't change much if we replace GDP with standard of living. If you care about making life better for all people on this earth, you should support harnessing more energy, not less. Ecosystem Ecology Deserts versus Rainforests in ecosystem ecology, we examine how energy flows through a system, how much solar energy is captured, how much food is available, who eats whom, and what happens after things die. Energy, or food, is the limiting factor in most ecosystems. Most food chains consist of three or four trophic levels. The foundation of all ecosystems are the primary producers, which are mainly plants. These organisms produce their own energy, typically through photosynthesis. Without a robust population of primary producers, an ecosystem will be constricted. Then we have the primary consumers, typically herbivores, who feed on the primary producers, for example deer, buffalo, and insects. Their limiting factor is finding enough plants to eat. Finally, we have secondary consumers, which are the predators who eat the herbivores, example wolves, bears, and eagles. Their limiting factor is the availability of prey for hunting. Technically, there are tertiary and quaternary consumers, but we're keeping things simple. Why are there fewer animals in a desert compared to a forest? Deserts are defined by very little rainwater. For desert plants, this means water is the limiting factor preventing growth. Cacti responded to this evolutionary pressure by developing spines, modified leaves, which minimize surface area, which reduces water loss, as well as to protect themselves from animals who might eat them. A limited water supply means very few plants or primary producers can survive here. Plants are the foundation of the trophic hierarchy, and they're very limited in deserts. With very little energy or food at the base of the pyramid, deserts can only host a few primary consumers, herbivores, a few rodents, insects, camels, etc. With very little prey or primary consumers, it's no surprise deserts can hardly sustain any predators or secondary consumers, such as snakes, coyotes, and roadrunners. Now compare this to a lush forest ecosystem. A strong foundation of plants, primary producers, 
can sustain exponentially more biodiversity up the trophic hierarchy. An abundance of plants feeds more prey, which in turn can sustain a healthy population of predators. Bitcoin's proof of work is a Darwinian competition. Why does Bitcoin have miners anyway? Satoshi used proof of work to create consensus reality in a distributed system when conditions may be hostile. Proof of work is also used to issue new tokens fairly according to the predetermined supply schedule. Satoshi understood that monetary units must have unforgeable costliness, which is to say the creation of new monetary units requires a real cost or work which can be easily verified. Fiat money, including proof-of-stake blockchains, is costless to produce, which inevitably leads to a politically captured monetary system. Bitcoin's proof-of-work function relies on two fundamental assumptions. One, thermodynamics. Miners must consume physical energy or work to generate hashes. Two, evolutionary biology. Humans are genetically programmed to be self-interested. Bitcoin lives primarily in the digital realm. Proof of work enables this digital organism to interface with the physical realm, which provides thermodynamic certainty that the miners did the work. This interplay also enables Bitcoin to create incentives that disrupt things in the real world, such as energy markets. Or as Dhruv Bonsal says, bits move atoms. The Bitcoin network pays miners for their work. Rational economic actors respond by competing for this bounty. How do miners find the best location, the right machines, and the optimal energy mix? No one knows. Instead, we turn to the market. We let a thousand flowers bloom, and only the best survive. Miners seek a balance of energy cost and long-term political stability, relocating when necessary to find a better niche upon which to plant roots. They put capital at risk and require multi-year time horizons to be profitable. This alignment of incentives is what makes miners good partners to the Bitcoin network. Zooming out to the entire miner ecosystem, it's a Darwinian competition for who can source SHA-256 hashes with the greatest efficiency. Those who are adaptable and make the best decisions survive long-term and are rewarded handsomely. The losers forfeit their capital and their machines get recycled back into the ecosystem. What do wolves and moose teach us about Bitcoin's difficulty adjustment? Satoshi needed an adaptive system that could plausibly survive long-term. What happens if Bitcoin experiences a rapid increase in hash power? Moore's law alone would lead to increasingly better machines with exponentially increasing hash power. If Moore's law was not accounted for, Bitcoin's programmatic supply schedule could not be trusted. Alternatively, how could Bitcoin survive a sudden decrease in hash rate? If the system doesn't adapt, the network may grind to a halt. 
China recently banned Bitcoin mining, resulting in a 50% drop in hash rate. Enter the difficulty adjustment. Every 2016 blocks, roughly two weeks, the system rebalances the difficulty of the computation the miners are attempting to solve in order to ensure blocks come in on average every 10 minutes and the issuance stays on schedule. This ensures the mining ecosystem is constantly seeking a dynamic equilibrium, long-term, under knowable conditions. Satoshi borrowed many principles from nature, including the difficulty adjustment. Let me explain. Isle Royal is a natural laboratory for studying ecology. An example of this in nature is Isle Royal, an island located 15 miles from shore in Lake Superior. Wolves and moose are among the only animals living on the island. The moose is the only prey available for the wolf, and the wolf is the only predator concerning the moose. The simplicity and isolation of this ecosystem makes it the perfect laboratory for studying ecology. The populations of moose and wolves on the island are constantly in flux. When the moose population is large relative to the wolves, even the weakest, slowest, oldest wolves get fed. But soon the oversized wolf population decimates this food source. Now with little food for the wolves, the weakest will die from starvation which reduces pressure on the moose population. Eventually, a temporary equilibrium is reached. As it turns out, ecology comes with a built-in difficulty adjustment. The same dynamic plays out in the Bitcoin miner ecosystem. When Bitcoin's price is high relative to the total hash rate, even the slowest, oldest generation miners are profitable, or fed. The good times don't last, as eventually the difficulty adjusts upward, and the least efficient miners must turn off, starve. Just like the moose and the wolves on Isle Royal, the miner ecosystem, modulated by the difficulty adjustment, is constantly seeking equilibrium, where marginal cost to mine a block equals marginal revenue. At maturity, Bitcoin mining should be a relatively boring, low-margin business similar to an energy utility today. You cannot cheat nature. If the wolf doesn't find a meal, it dies. There are no magic potions to revive the wolf. It's necessary for the weakest individuals to be culled to ensure the rest of the population has enough food to survive. If a wizard did revive all the fallen wolves, they'll eventually eat all the food and lead their own species to extinction. We see this unnatural imbalance arise when central bankers bail out zombie companies. Sure, you save one company, but you put the entire economy at risk. Rather, we must let the market settle and recycle capital. Reviving the wolf and bailing out zombie companies are examples of cheating nature. Each time nature is cheated, long-term systemic risk builds in the system increasing the risk of catastrophe or extinction. Alternatively, there are no bailouts in Bitcoin. Bitcoin obeys the rules of nature. The net effect is accepting short-term price volatility in exchange for long-term systemic stability.
Energy Markets Are Widely Misunderstood. This essay will rely on a few assumptions about energy. Energy doesn't travel well and cannot be easily stored. Supply must be near the demand. Battery tech is too expensive. Building high-voltage transmission lines is expensive. And there is significant loss of energy when transmitting over long distances. This leads to energy with no buyer, known as stranded energy supplies that are too far from sources of demand. Historically, aluminum smelting has absorbed some of this glut, but that requires high capex. It's not modular, not on demand, and cannot tolerate interruptible loads. In other words, Bitcoin mining is far superior for absorbing excess energy supply. Energy does not equal electricity. These are often used interchangeably, but this is a mistake. All electricity is a form of energy, but not all energy is electricity. Energy can take many forms, including mechanical, heat, and nuclear. The challenge is harnessing energy in a manner that is easy to deploy. What good is the sun's energy if you're not a plant or don't have solar panels? Electricity, electrons on a wire, is a highly distilled, extremely dense form of energy with high fungibility, making it ideal for our grids. Energy grids are forced to overproduce. Grids must produce enough capacity to satisfy peak demand, such as the hottest day of the year. However, average demand is typically less than 50% of the peak, which leads to tremendous oversupply that just gets wasted. Not to mention, energy grids often require, quote, peaker plants, which are power plants that only run when there is peak demand. These plants serve as peak demand insurance and tend to be carbon dioxide heavy plants. Consuming electricity doesn't necessarily produce additional CO2. The CO2 is produced when we convert some energy sources into electricity. Practically speaking, anytime Bitcoin miners are consuming surplus electricity from the grid, there is no marginal increase in CO2 production. What percentage of Bitcoin's energy mix comes from surplus electricity? It's hard to calculate and always changing. Nick Carter explores this topic here. Wind and solar cannot save us. Energy grids need to temporarily match the production and consumption of energy. We rely on nuclear and natural gas because they are consistent energy sources we call base load. Wind and solar are intermittent, unpredictable, and poorly tuned to the shape of demand, which causes the duck curve. Put more simply, the sun only shines during the workday when demand is low. Demand spikes after work when the sun is no longer shining. This mismatch causes grid congestion, which can be remedied with Bitcoin miners in the short term, and hopefully increased transmission capacity and improved battery storage over the long term. Now that we have a foundational understanding of proof of work, energy, and why harnessing more energy is better, we can build on it. 
The Ecology of Energy Markets and Bitcoin Let's explore the base incentives driving energy utilities, Bitcoin miners, and then tie them both together. Energy utilities are constantly trying to predict the future. What is the future demand for energy in my area? Who will purchase it and at what price? This is a challenging endeavor, making securing capital investment for energy assets tricky because ROI is long and there are many unknown and unknowable variables. Bitcoin reduces economic uncertainty for energy producers. Before committing upfront capital, the utilities can lock in a captive customer in the form of a Bitcoin miner. Quote, Bitcoin isn't competing for resources. Resources are competing for Bitcoin. Obi-Wan Kenobit Incentives Driving the Bitcoin Mining Industry Bitcoin miners only need three things, specialist hardware, energy, and an internet connection. The primary cost is energy, which incentivizes miners to find the cheapest source. Usually this means Bitcoin miners seek out non-rival energy, or energy that would otherwise be wasted. In fact, Bitcoin doesn't waste energy. It often converts otherwise wasted energy into a highly liquid digital commodity. Not to mention the Bitcoin miners pay for the energy, which by definition means it's not wasted. From this vantage point, Bitcoin appears to be a permissionless energy sink, a buyer of last resort setting a global price floor for energy. Effectively, Bitcoin miners are a free market energy subsidy. Over the long term, this is a much more sustainable solution than the government issuing subsidies that cause unintended negative consequences, such as malinvestment and making our economy more fragile. This incentivizes humans around the world to produce energy more efficiently. Imagine how these incentives will change the world in a hundred years. More on that below. What kind of organisms are Bitcoin miners? What kind of organism is Bitcoin? What makes Bitcoin miners uniquely valuable sources of demand? What niche do Bitcoin miners satisfy? Bitcoin miners' role as a pioneer species is to colonize harsh environments and convert them into a complex system full of biodiversity. Usually pioneer species are plants, fungi, and lichen. What makes a good pioneer species? They are hardy, drought-tolerant species that cooperate well with others and can easily disperse their seeds, highly mobile, to ensure many, quote, chances at success. This forms a nice parallel with the energy industry. What makes Bitcoin miners an attractive partner to energy utilities? Bitcoin miners are a unique source of demand due to co-location, interruptible load demand, and high mobility. Co-location. Since shipping energy long distance is inefficient, capital intensive, and portable modern battery tech doesn't scale well, much of the energy we produce has no buyer, which is where the stranded energy term comes about. However, Bitcoin miners are able to travel to the energy source 
co-locate, and monetize excess energy capacity that would have otherwise gone to waste. Some miners deploy on oil wells and convert waste methane into digital gold. The Bitcoin mining company, Great American Mining, calls this bringing the market to the molecule. This symbiosis reduces risk and uncertainty for the energy utilities and allows Bitcoin miners to gain access to cheap energy. From an ecological perspective, co-location illustrates how Bitcoin is uniquely able to survive under any condition. If someone figures out how to harness energy on the North Pole, Bitcoin miners can survive there. If we harness geothermal energy inside a remote volcano, Bitcoin miners can survive there. Bitcoin miners aren't picky eaters. They can consume any frequency or flavor of energy that can be turned into electricity. No other source of energy demand can do this. Of course, Bitcoin miners cannot do this alone. They form symbiosis with the energy utilities, which provide them with cheap food, energy. Interruptible load. All right, let's pause right here at this section and take a minute to talk about Swan Bitcoin. I buy the dip. I buy when it's falling. I buy when it's flat, I buy when it rockets up, and I buy the top. You want to know why? Because I do it automatically with Swan Bitcoin. I set this up, I don't even know how long ago now. I've barely touched it, outside of the fact that from time to time I rush to log in as fast as I can and buy as much as possible without having my power turned off when the price is crashing real bad. You got to take advantage of those red candles, baby. But otherwise, when I leave it alone, I'm stacking every single week. And the best part, in my opinion, is the automatic withdrawals. I get an email notifying me when I reach a threshold that I set for how much I want to risk on an exchange or with a custodian. They just notify me that they are sending Bitcoin to my hardware wallet. I click a button that says, good, do it, and it's done. There is no more Bitcoiner thing than having an automatic, always stacking, an automatic withdrawal to your Bitcoin keys. That is Swan Bitcoin. Plus, they have some of the best education uh, in the space. A great blog. They're always there to help. Uh, they even have Swan Private for high net worth individuals. They'll guide you through setting up your Bitcoin plan, uh, your security practices, answer any questions. They are always available. They're just a great Bitcoin company and the best place to buy Bitcoin. Join the army of Bitcoin stackers at Swan Bitcoin by going to swanbitcoin.com slash guy. All right, now let's jump back in. Interruptible load. Most industrial consumers, such as factories, hospitals, and data centers, require predictable, reliable energy supply. Otherwise, they'll face catastrophic consequences. Bitcoin miners prefer consistent supply, but they can handle power outages or reductions with little consequence. This makes Bitcoin miners uniquely symbiotic with energy grids, serving as demand response partners. If energy is ever in short supply, people get priority over Bitcoin miners. However, whenever there is excess energy, it gets monetized. This symbiotic relationship leads to more energy abundance generally. In ecological terms, being tolerant to interruptible load is like being drought tolerant. Life as a pioneer is harsh and unpredictable. 
Success comes to those who survive a drought. Bitcoin miners can turn off at a moment's notice and thrive without 100% uptime, unlike fragile species such as hospitals or people heating their homes during winter. Mobile, portable, recyclable. Most sources of energy demand are in a fixed location. While the aluminum smelting plant is a great user of excess energy, it cannot be moved if there are fluctuations in the energy market. Conversely, because mining hardware is quite portable, miners can chase energy surplus wherever it occurs. Historically, Chinese miners would move to Sichuan during the rainy season to take advantage of excess hydroelectricity, then leave during the dry season when energy prices increased. However, China banned Bitcoin mining in 2021, which led to a 50% decline in hash rate. This is an example of a niche disturbance, which changed incentives and led to hash power migration to friendlier jurisdictions. Six months after China's ban, Bitcoin hash rate made a full recovery, which demonstrates its resilience. The ecological parallel here is how pioneer species can easily disperse their seeds, mobility. Some pioneer species reproduce with spores that are lighter than air. Some float through the ocean until finding dry land. Others trick birds to eat their seeds, which they defecate, serving as fertilizer. In summary, Bitcoin and energy utilities are symbiotic. Miners improve the economics of energy utilities, provide jobs, and increase resilience of the grid. In exchange, miners receive cheap energy and gain powerful allies in the form of local governments. Over time, the energy utilities that partner with Bitcoin miners will outcompete those who do not. Small change in incentives, big impact. What niches do Bitcoin miners satisfy? Bitcoin miners satisfy two primary niches. First, we have existing energy assets with excess capacity. This encompasses the vast majority of our existing infrastructure, including energy grids, upstream oil and gas, nuclear, seasonal energy sources like hydro, intermittent energy sources like solar and wind, and many more. Bitcoin miners co-locate with existing energy producers and buy up all the cheap energy supply that would otherwise go to waste. West Texas is a great example of this symbiosis in action. Energy producers are more profitable, energy costs decline, and the grid becomes more reliable for everyone. In ecology, this is an example of secondary succession in which plants and animals recolonize a habitat after a disturbance, such as a flood or wildfire. The disturbance injects new incentives, which lead to a restructuring of the entire ecosystem. In this analogy, Bitcoin miners are the disturbance which restructures the incentives of the entire energy ecosystem. Second, we have untapped energy assets that haven't yet been harnessed energy deserts. This includes geothermal energy from volcanoes, mountainous regions with wild rivers, sunny regions, windy regions, and any number of potential energy assets that aren't currently developed 
due to economic reasons or otherwise. Bitcoin uses simple economic incentives to unlock this latent energy supply. From the energy producer perspective, Bitcoin miners are captive customers with stable, predictable demand. They serve as a subsidy to bootstrap new energy investments by reducing risk, accelerating return on investment, and lowering the cost of capital. This will result in net new energy investments that previously weren't possible without symbiosis with Bitcoin miners. Back to ecology. Bootstrapping net new energy projects is an example of primary succession, in which organisms colonize a new habitat for the first time, effectively turning a desolate wasteland into a complex ecosystem. In this analogy, Bitcoin miners are pioneer species uniquely qualified to colonize new territory, bootstrap latent energy sources. Much ink has been spilled demonstrating how Bitcoin miners are symbiotic with existing energy assets, secondary succession. Let's focus on primary succession and how Bitcoin will help bootstrap net energy assets that will pave the way to prosperity. Ecological Succession From Pioneer Species to Climax Community Pioneer species first colonize a new hostile niche. Fungi, lichens, and primitive plants are good examples. They take the most risk and fail often, yet they play a crucial role. Without pioneer species, complex ecosystems could never get off the ground. Eventually, pioneer species are displaced by intermediate species, which are more suitable to the changes in the environment made by the pioneer species. Intermediate species include grasses, shrubs, and shade-intolerant trees. This process of ecological succession continues for hundreds of years until the ecosystem becomes a climax community. Climax communities are relatively anti-fragile, support large trees, and can sustain a rich diversity of predators and prey. Bitcoin is a pioneer species that colonizes energy deserts. Surtsey, an island off the southern coast of Iceland, is an iconic example of a place where primary succession has been studied for decades and where human disturbance has been minimized due to significant geographic isolation and early protection efforts. In 1965, a volcano erupted, destroying all life on Circe. A year later, scientists found some hardy plants had already colonized the island, which jump-started the process of primary succession. Fast forward a few decades, and it's a thriving ecosystem where the original plants have been displaced by more suitable intermediate creatures. After being displaced, the pioneer species reproduce and attempt to colonize a new barren wasteland. Bitcoin acts like one of the pioneer species on the island of Circe. It incentivizes investors to bootstrap energy sources that aren't currently being harnessed. In the early stages, Bitcoin miners serve as captive demand, reducing the risk and time to value of the energy asset. Over time, this leads to an increase in energy production 
and a decrease in cost. Abundant energy also attracts higher-value use cases for energy such as industry, the intermediate species of this example. Industry creates jobs, then people move nearby who subsequently need houses and basic services. Before long, you have a little boomtown, similar to what we saw in the gold rush of the mid-1800s or on the Bakken oil field in North Dakota today. This boomtown is now an intermediate community, and the new industrial consumers eventually outcompete Bitcoin miners for energy supply. They're willing to pay more. The ecosystem is thriving due to energy abundance and wealthy shareholders from mining Bitcoin. The boomtown is now able to outcompete nearby ecosystems who have less energy and wealth. This creates a positive feedback loop leading to more jobs, more people, more abundance, and a more complex culture. Rational companies and politicians will now defend Bitcoin because it's crucial to the success of their city. Eventually, this former energy desert will become a Climax community. Climax communities are vibrant human civilizations with access to large amounts of low-cost, reliable energy. They're full of cool neighborhoods, microclimates, successful corporations, apex predators, and become culturally rich with music, food, and people, biodiversity. This isn't a fragile gold mining boomtown anymore. As complexity or biodiversity of the community increases, the system becomes increasingly more prosperous and anti-fragile. These climax communities will owe their success to a subtle shift in the incentives created by Bitcoin's proof-of-work mechanism. What happens to the displaced Bitcoin miners, the pioneer species? A few Bitcoin miners stay around and continue soaking up any excess energy capacity. These would most likely be older generation miners which are less efficient, hashes per unit of energy, and thus come with a lower opportunity cost. They can handle intermittent load and serve as a background player stabilizing the new grid and ensuring maximum efficiency of all energy produced. Most Bitcoin miners, however, are displaced by consumers who are willing to pay a higher price for energy. Just like the pioneer plants on Surtsey, they traverse to new areas by releasing airborne seeds carried by the wind and birds. Eventually, these citadel seeds find a suitable niche, an energy desert, and once again serve as a pioneer species in a new location, bootstrapping the entire process again with the benefit of genetic wisdom passed down from the previous generation. Over time, the selective pressures weed out the weakest miners and select for those who can manage capital well and form symbiosis with energy producers best. Individual miners are self-interested, and yet the miner ecosystem as a whole is effectively competing for, quote, who can benefit humanity the most. Let's examine a few more real-world examples. Located in the Democratic Republic of Congo lies Virunga, Africa's oldest national park. It serves as both an ambitious wildlife conservation project and a crucial economic hub for over 5 million people living nearby. 
According to the Virunga Alliance, which aims to foster peace and prosperity through responsible economic development of natural resources, quote, Virunga National Park's resources have enormous economic value. When these resources are poorly managed, they can lead to extreme cycles of violence. Cultivating peace and stability in the region is tied to the park's ability to harness the wealth of the park to help build new jobs and opportunities for the local population. Less than 10% of the Congolese have access to power, which understandably so leads to citizens cutting down trees to stay warm and cook their food. Cooking with biofuels is a leading cause of indoor air pollution and results in millions of deaths annually, usually young children. Hope is not lost. The Virunga Alliance has partnered with the EU and Bitcoin miners to harness latent hydropower found in the vast mountainous regions in Virunga. Bitcoin miners effectively subsidize existing energy hydro, secondary succession, and incentivize development of new hydro coming online, primary succession. This symbiosis will promote economic development, help stop deforestation, create jobs, attract industry which will reduce reliance on imports, preserve endangered species, prevent unnecessary deaths caused by cooking with biomass, and reduce violence caused by systemic poverty in the region. Energy abundance created in part due to Bitcoin miners gives hope for the future of the region. There will undoubtedly be challenges along the way, but the foundational conditions are met to encourage an underdeveloped region to one day become a climax community. Next time you hear some privileged journalists claiming Bitcoin waste energy, point them to Virunga as an example of Bitcoin providing humanitarian, economic, and environmental aid to a neglected region on a neglected continent. Other examples of Bitcoin miners serving as pioneer species around the globe. Volcano mining in El Salvador. Their Bitcoin profits are being used to build 20 new schools and a veterinarian hospital. Hydro mining in Laos, one of the poorest countries in the region and an abundance of excess hydropower on the Mekong River. Laos expects to earn $190 million in 2022 from Bitcoin mining alone. Geothermal in Kenya. Vast untapped geothermal is just waiting to be harnessed. Kenya lacks the capital needed to develop this energy, and Bitcoin miners can help. Hydroelectric in Ethiopia. 90% of their power comes from hydro, and much of it is stranded. Bitcoin miners serve as a revenue source for utilities until infrastructure to distribute energy can catch up. Looking Forward How Human Civilization Becomes a Climax Community Human civilization in 2021 is at best an intermediate society. We're no longer a pioneer society struggling to get by, yet we have a long way to go before claiming to be a climax community. Bitcoin miners shake up society by introducing new incentives. While it's impossible to predict exactly how a complex system, a civilization, will respond, we can use ecology and systems thinking 
to make predictions. First, a quick recap of the new incentives. Harnessing energy anywhere can now be monetized. Existing energy assets are more economical due to symbiosis with Bitcoin miners. The cost of capital for net new energy assets has decreased. Now that we understand the incentives at play, let's speculate on where these incentives might take us in the next 10, 100, or 1,000 years. Bitcoin mining leads to energy mastery. Bitcoin mining is a species-level incentive leading to energy mastery. It acts like a free market subsidy for the entire energy industry. Just imagine what humans can accomplish after 100 years of emergent free market energy bounties. Similar to how demand for online streaming services drove investment into broadband infrastructure, Bitcoin creates demand for energy which will drive investment into energy infrastructure. Expect total energy production to grow dramatically. New energy sources becoming economical for the first time, declining energy cost globally, and futuristic new energy assets that will only be made possible due to the increased incentives for R&D. Rather than relying on government subsidies which distort the market, the invisible hand of Satoshi can guide us towards a Type 1 civilization. Bitcoin miners and energy producers will likely merge. MBAs will call this vertical integration. Ecologists will call this coevolution. Some say we'll even price energy in Satoshis someday. What fraction of the world's electricity will be used to secure the money supply? Dhruv Bansal theorized that we'll eventually hit a saturation point called the Nakamoto point, where the marginal revenue from proof of work will equal the marginal revenue from selling energy to the grid. Mining above this saturation point would be uneconomical, and mining less would be wasteful. As our energy constraints decline, new technologies will become economical, such as desalination plants, removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, producing green hydrogen, molecular weight refineries, space travel, and terraforming Mars. On a micro scale, anything that uses heat as a resource can be made more economical through symbiosis with Bitcoin mining. For example, individuals can heat their home or greenhouse with the waste heat from their ASIC rigs. More importantly, however, is that energy mastery will do more for humanitarian causes than all the NGOs combined. Energy mastery will raise the minimum standard of living globally. Energy that is both reliable and abundant is key to food security, shelter, clean water, education, and a prosperous economy. Sub-Saharan Africa needs the most help. According to the IEA, this region is home to 500 million people without electricity, and 900 million lack access to clean cooking fuel. Much of Africa is rich in untapped renewable energy sources, such as hydroelectric, solar, and geothermal. Unfortunately, it also lacks the capital investment required to harness this energy. This is a complicated problem, but Bitcoin will undoubtedly be part of the solution. Quote, 
Instead of relying on altruism or sliding deeper into debt, EM countries can finance renewable energy farms and harness vast natural resources via Bitcoin mining and generate immediate revenue to expand electrification and close the energy access gap. Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. Pakistan produces more energy than it consumes, and yet most major cities regularly suffer blackouts because they lack the infrastructure to transport the energy to where it's needed. Building this infrastructure is expensive, and so is servicing the debt on these energy assets. This leads to rising energy costs in Pakistan, which lower quality of life dramatically. Bitcoin miners could serve as a steady source of demand to monetize its stranded energy. This would improve the economics of its energy assets. It would free up capital, eventually leading to declining energy prices and higher quality of life. Hopefully, one day developing countries can enjoy a similar living standard as the developed world. Early adopters will leapfrog the laggards. The first companies on the internet were appropriately rewarded for being both right and early to a new technology. The same story is unfolding with Bitcoin and Bitcoin miners. Developing countries have a unique opportunity to simultaneously harness more energy while generating tremendous wealth by mining Bitcoin. Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund is a nice parallel. They nationalized and monetized their national resources, mostly oil, providing long-term economic stability and a high quality of life for its residents. Developing nations can both mine Bitcoin and buy Bitcoin for their sovereign wealth fund. Countries such as Ethiopia, Kenya, Laos, and El Salvador, mentioned above, are sitting on abundant geothermal and hydroelectric potential. By monetizing these assets with Bitcoin, they may leapfrog the late adopters and become new climax communities. The Great Spreading Out Historically, humans built civilizations alongside rivers, which provide transportation, energy, food, water, and defense. These hubs of transport, energy, and commerce created new opportunities attracting more and more people. Post-industrial revolution, the migration to cities accelerated and has been called the Great Urbanization. Both China and the World Economic Forum's vision of the future involves continuing the trend of urbanization. They seek centrally planned megacities controlled by sophisticated social credit systems. This techno-fascist view of the future results in citizens, quote, owning nothing and being happy. We only have two ways to coordinate society at scale, with cooperation or coercion. The global elite choose coercion, while the Bitcoiners choose cooperation. Which way, Western man? A practical way to opt out of this madness. Great news for anybody who values market-based economies and individual freedom. There may be another path. Bitcoin mining provides a key to unlocking nascent potential in distant rural areas, rich with latent energy sources. As these new latent energy sources come online, humans will follow the energy sources resulting in the great spreading out. Bitcoin miners will monetize these energy assets, 
turning them into the nucleus of a new type of human organization. With abundant power and wealth supported by Bitcoin mining, these startup cities will attract ideologically aligned people who diverge from mainstream culture. They will become increasingly self-sufficient, experiment with forms of government, form special economic zones, and eventually become self-sovereign city-states, or citadels. You'll mine Bitcoin and you'll be happy. Bitcoin mining is necessary, but not sufficient. The 20th century Citadel toolkit also involves widespread cryptography, ubiquitous internet access, self-sovereign money, remote work, regenerative agriculture, and more. These citadels must succeed, for they have an important duty. They must preserve the spark of freedom, for I fear it's more fragile than we know. In Harmony with Nature The world is a complex place. Lately, it feels like things are going off the rails. The central planners underestimate the complexity of the world and make poor decisions in haste. This results in unintended negative consequences affecting everyone. As they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Good intentions aren't good enough. Results are all that matter. If we hope to improve the complex system we call society, we need to carefully fix the incentives. Through ecology, we can see Bitcoin as a subtle disturbance that changes the incentives around two foundational systems in society, money and energy. This results in digital sound money and mastery over energy. Together, these will serve as pillars of progress in the 21st century. Now, go forth and plant citadel seeds all around the universe. Large streams from little fountains flow, tall oaks from little acorns grow. Man, that's some good shit. Love that article. All right, before we get into a rather lengthy guy's take on this, let's take a moment for our lovely sponsor, the Bitbox O2. So I said earlier that I've been using my Bit, uh, the Bitbox a lot more frequently lately, uh, just because all the major changes I've had to use after uh, my phone disaster. And that's true, I've had to use it like many, many times every day for like five or six days now. And I usually, the majority of my transactions and payments are not on chain. I do almost all lightning for day-to-day -day stuff these days. So my hardware wallets tend to just kind of stay relatively inactive. That's why I want something that values security above all else, right? But it's also, I also need something intuitive. If it's confusing, then after I set it aside for like four weeks or maybe even six months that I don't touch it, I might forget how to use the thing. It might feel unfamiliar to me again, going back to it. You don't want that. You want something that's simple to use with a very intuitive interface and it's going to keep your Bitcoin secure. That is why I'm a fan of the BitBox. It's just a solid-ass device. You plug it right in your computer or Android smartphone, whatever. You unlock it. You're good to go. Send some coins to open up a new Lightning channel. Uh, grab an address off the device so that you can you know, withdraw from the exchange where you are not stupid and you do not leave your coins, but instead you withdraw them to your BitBox so that you are safe from hackers and irresponsible financial companies. It's just the way to do it. Get a 5% discount 
uh, off everything in your uh, cart, actually, with code GUY, G-U-Y. Go straight to their store, guyswan.com slash bitbox. Uh, link and discount code, all that good stuff in the show notes. Check them out. All right, let's jump back in. Um, what's funny is that this one actually hits so many of the elements of the energy debate um, by explaining what role Bitcoin plays. And I think the idea of the pioneer species is, is really relevant here because that truly is what Bitcoin is when you look at it in the context of trying to find energy, of, of trying to create, quote unquote, life where there is the source of life, where there are nutrients, where there are resources, where does the environment of the market, of the economy, of civilization actually arise and where is it sustainable? And, you know, you see throughout history that this existed or, or that we, we chased where uh, all the water, um, all, all the uh, water routes, all the rivers, all the, uh, the coasts. And this is still the case. You look at human civilization and uh, you look at a, you know, a heat map of populations today. We're just we just all around water. We're, we're like as a civilization, as a society or an organism Humanity is like moss, like it just goes, finds a wet spot and it expands and grows. But post the Industrial Revolution, well, not, not really. There's a bunch of different, you know, incremental steps, but the Industrial, Re Industrial Revolution, excuse me, was a huge step towards um, finding other resources, finding new resources, finding uh, oil, finding gold, finding all of these other things that can be used for civilization and begin to profitably colonize areas that aren't near water that may otherwise seem barren but that expand the the scope of the environment that can be conquered so to speak that can be inhabited by the human species and in the the expansion west for the united states in particular like the the west is such a great um, example of this with the gold rush and setting up all of these towns and creating these roadways. It really is. And I love, this is also why I love uh, Brandon Quittam's other pieces is the comparison to fungi and how, uh, how the human species behaves as a singular organism with, uh, with natural incentives that essentially allow us to react and grow based on our environment and that is what the economy is. And actually, I'll get to that in just a minute. I want to, before I get too far on a tangent here, there, uh, just in the context of Bitcoin mining and how it changes the energy environment, there are major elements that Bitcoin has or that Bitcoin mining has as an energy consumer and value producer that no other thing has that is truly unique in its combination of quote-unquote needs and outputs. So the first is just the overhead in general, is that it requires, requires incredibly little capital to, at least in comparison to everything else, like you might think, oh, I got to have a bunch of miners and all of this stuff. But in the general sense, when you're looking at something that consumes an enormous amount of power and can do so profitably, can do so economically, Yes, its costs are incredibly low in, com in comparison to other things. Like you can do three machines and you can go out and you can plug it up to a methane flare and you can actually produce money. There is almost nothing that you can do at that small of a scale 
that is actually sustainable. The fact that Bitcoin mining is to a degree profitable, almost in complete disregard to its scale. I mean, obviously not entirely. There's a lot of different efficiencies that can be gained in the normal scalability of certain systems. But in a general sense, the fact that that one mega hash is exactly worth one one millionth of one terahash, not only obviously in just the, the sheer metric of the number of hashes, but economically as well. That's actually extremely rare. And the fact that this overhead is so low that the capital requirements to, to go in and actually set something like this up and the ability to move it quickly. And that might seem like, oh, it takes weeks and months to, set the, to, to shut one down and bring it back up. When you're talking about things that consume massive amounts of energy, that is insanely fast. That is insanely fast. The fact that, you know, some of the, 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 the current offloading technologies that consume enormous amounts of excess energy, like he actually brings up the aluminum smelting, which we've talked about in a couple of different episodes on energy in the past. But Iceland is a great example of this. There's a lot of uh, aluminum smelting that happens in Iceland because they have tons of excess geothermal energy. But the excess has to be freaking enormous. It's not like they could have like 5% or 10% extra and then you could throw on a little bit of extra aluminum smelting and then take that up and then you'd be fine and we can shut it off whenever we want to. No, if there's not like a 500% excess and only a tiny fraction of it is being used then aluminum smelting isn't even on the table. It's a huge capital requirement to even begin to consume uh, that amount of energy, and it has to be consistent. It can't ever cut off. You can't set up this, in, this giant orchestration of creating aluminum and then, uh, and then just like cut it off for a couple of weeks. No, the thing's got to be running all the time. So the, the areas and the energy sources with which that is even slightly viable, is tiny. It's great in the places that it's needed, but it's only in the most like vast chasms between the ability to produce energy versus the energy consumption that it is even viable and it has to be consistently produced. This is why you happen to see it really only in the areas that have tons of excess geothermal energy because geothermal doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't fluctuate, um, and it's consistent. And if it's nuclear, it's geographically uh, stuck where it is, which is another great point um, that we're about to get to with uh, Bitcoin mining. But it's, it's geographically centered or, or uh, restrained so that you can't take it. You can't like pick up some geothermal energy from Iceland and bring it to the United States and plop it down and then run anything off of it. Whereas nuclear, even though that's one of the other sources of highly abundant uh, potentially very high in excess energy, you can locate it where you need the energy so that there's not going to be naturally this excess. Hydropower is another great one that's specific geographically, but not necessarily anywhere near demand, but it's a huge energy source. And that's why historically in China in particular, uh, well, actually all over the world, uh, Bitcoin mining has gravitated towards all of the areas that have tons of hydro and specifically areas that are have tons of hydro and are way away from like massive population centers. That's why so much uh, mining power would migrate to Sichuan uh, in China, the Sichuan province in China, 
when the rainy season started because there's just an absolutely astounding amount of hydropower that's produced that just doesn't get to any customers. And that leads to the, actually the third point I wanted to bring up about Bitcoin mining, but that it is geographically independent. The second one is that it is, it's time independent. It's time and demand independent. You can't shut down any, any other major source or, or demand for energy needs it when it needs it. You know, there's not like a time in which Amazon can just shut off all their servers because, oh, we're not producing enough wind energy. Like, no, it needs to be running when I bring up my phone or somebody wants to visit my website. I need it when the customer needs it, when the demand is required. So when the energy is sourced, when the energy is best produced, it's totally irrelevant. No customer gives a shit when the energy is produced, when they actually want, they care about when they need it, when they want to turn on Netflix. You couldn't run Netflix servers on wind power and then just cut them off at eight o'clock in the afternoon when, oh, the wind's not blowing right now. Sorry, you can watch Netflix tomorrow. And yet Bitcoin, you can. Because it's this, this collective battle, this, uh, uh, progress less there's no progress in mining right like after you mine for nine minutes you're still you still have the exact same probability at the end of nine minutes of mining a block as you did the very first time you made a hash to have a valid one so it doesn't matter and if you don't broadcast if you're not even connected to the internet for that nine minutes it's irrelevant that nine minutes is equal to any nine minutes of hashing that you do compared to the difficulty adjustment at any time, anywhere, for forever. Like, it just is. It is solely and completely a probability. Therefore, if you shut off for five minutes, it doesn't really matter. If it's uneconomical for you for that five minutes to shut it off, you just shut it off. You don't lose your place in line. You don't, you don't drop progress. You don't have customers wondering why isn't Bitcoin running right now. Because where there is energy, where it is economical, it will keep running and Bitcoin can handle huge fluctuations in the hash power. We have seen this. It is incredible. The, the shift that happened when China banned mining is one of the most bullish things that has happened in Bitcoin uh, in, in its history. The block size war, I think, was probably one of the most foundational things for me where I was like, holy shit, this thing is going to work. This thing really does have the right game theory, the, the game theory as it was explained openly and discussed and played out for two to three years before the block size war, before the forks, the major forks that happened. It was openly explained and everything was theorized that this is what was going to happen and then we did the user activated soft fork and that's exactly what happened the fact that the game theory is understandable to a point that you can predict the future of the thing if the incentives you can basically take the incentives that it lays out and see how it can alter the environment how it can alter the players in the game and where the costs are and where the rewards are and therefore where the convergence is likely to be is incredible it is incredible to me it's fascinating to think that you can know how it will behave by understanding the economics the incentives and the game theory 
And that so much applies to this. If you don't understand that in the context of Bitcoin's energy consumption and the idea of Bitcoin mining, the industry of Bitcoin mining, you'll never even begin to understand why Bitcoin is such a profound improvement, such a huge benefit to the energy production industry, to the idea of having a grid. Of course, that also requires knowing a lot of the major problems of the grid, which also people are just very, uh, generally very, very ignorant of. Granted, I was too. I'm not even, I'm not even using that like accusatory. Why would you know anything about the grid? You just turn, I don't, I don't think about all of the different things that made it happen that my light switch worked. I just flip the light switch and the light comes on. It is completely in the background of any normal person's mind. So of course, energy is just something that we conjure out of thin air and it exists when we want it to exist and it doesn't when we don't. That is it. That is our, that is the basic general knowledge of energy and energy production. You got to make sure that you got to have a cord and energy has to exist, period. It is 100% Bitcoin that made me a freaking weirdo where I would read incredibly long and obnoxious papers about what our grid looks like and what the major problems are and how much energy we waste. Never would have had a slightest clue if Bitcoin didn't exist. So I guess I could thank Bitcoin for that on top of all of the other things. But then going back to my points, point three, which I already mentioned, is that it is geographically independent. So it is time independent, geographically independent, and it has very little overhead and it is relatively scale independent at least more so than almost anything else that you have at your disposal for energy consumption. But geographically independent means that you can put them anywhere on planet Earth that you can find an energy source. And all you have to, you can mine in Antarctica, and all you need is a satellite dish. And obviously, thanks to the minimum resources needed to actually run a full node, You know, the fact that the bandwidth required is even low means you don't even need like a super highly advanced satellite dish. You can get a half decent, uh, as long as you've got, you can see the night sky. That is it. As long as you can see the sky, you have access to the data connection anywhere on the planet that is necessary to run a node. Because running the underlying blockchain, running the validation and the consensus process that makes the money what it is, that secures everything about the rules of Bitcoin, is incredibly agile. It is incredibly energy unintensive, or excuse me, uh, resource unintensive. This is why people, this is why I have two Raspberry Pis. You know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to run a server on a Raspberry Pi. It's a toy computer. It's a very small, uh, not very uh, uh, robust device. It's like 40 bucks. And yet I can run an entire Bitcoin node. I can secure the entire set of rules and the enti- validate the entire history of a global, independent, politically... Uh, apolitically secured monetary system. That is rather profound. And I can mine with that just as easily. All I need to do is have the barest of an internet connection, enough to transmit one megabyte in 20, 30 seconds, and I can mine Bitcoin from anywhere in the world. 
That means that no matter where the energy source is, that is now an inhabitable environment for Bitcoin. And when value can inhabit that area, Bitcoin can, excuse me, humans can, humanity can. It essentially turns, it changes the incentives of around the ability to utilize energy such that all of these different places and energy sources that either A, existed in time deserts in the context that, oh, the wind was blowing at 11 o'clock in the morning when energy consumption is only 10% at, of peak, therefore the wind energy is almost 100% going to waste, or it exists in a geographic desert in the sense that the energy exists in a place where nobody is around to consume it. And because any transmission whatsoever comes with uh, incredible resistance, it just becomes pointless to even try to acquire that energy. There is no way to, you know, if you're a thousand miles away from your closest source of demand, you're going to squeeze 1% of the economic value out of that energy. If you build all of the infrastructure and the transformers and the amplifiers and everything you need to get it from that, that uh, you know, hydro dam to the nearest city, and you have to travel hundreds, maybe even maybe even a thousand miles to get there, you all the energy is gone by the time it arrives. It's completely uneconomical. But you can put just you could just scale up as many Bitcoin miners as you need or as few as you need at this location, and every single watt is equally economical as any other watt produced anywhere on the planet. Man, you just can't understand how important that is in changing the dynamics of this, the, the fundamental incentives that will truly, completely alter our energy production. And to the point of using that as a pioneer species, it will completely alter where human civilization can sustain itself. That's, that's pretty profound. That we could look at a heat map of the world and rather than just being bigger and uh, more dense in all of the areas that we're currently used to, that there's going to be a whole new span of areas and a span of time in which energy can be utilized such that the world could look differently, that the path of the world and the path of human civilization has changed because of the existence of Bitcoin, how it changes the fundamental incentives of money and our ability to communicate value and how it changes our fundamental incentives around being able to find and economically take advantage of energy sources anywhere that they exist. But, but to begin to wrap your head around that, you have to know what's wrong with the energy grid, with the way that we produce energy today. And, and, and that's where I think a lot of the... A lot of the ignorant, well, that's not true. Uh, most people just hate Bitcoin. It's funny. The narrative has changed. We were actually talking about this at the meetup. Um, hat tip Bruno. I said this was going to be like guy's take for Bruno. <laughs> um, but uh, we were talking about this and the mining narrative and the energy cost narrative has actually shifted from like 2017, 2018, where uh, generally everybody was complaining. They were just complaining about Bitcoin's not got any value and it wastes energy. But the complaint was that it doesn't use enough renewable energy, right? I guess basically that was 2019, 2020. That was when Elon got on board and he was like, oh, there's not enough renewable energy. And now the narrative has actually changed 
There have been multiple times in which I have seen people saying it's using too much renewable energy because it's stealing it from other uses. Which means that there's no argument. They don't care what kind of energy it's using. They're just, they're just coming up with whatever criticism sounds the best so that they can say you shouldn't do this thing that I don't like. All of the arguments basically amount to, and the fact that that blatant contradiction exists, just says that Bitcoin is using energy and I hate it. That, that is all the argument is. They're just looking for a justification that sounds good to back that up. And one of the major things that they fundamentally don't understand is how much renewable energy is thrown away because it's useless. There's a great TED Talk that actually got me going down a rabbit hole on solar and wind energy. And I think it was about nuclear. I think it's the one on nuclear that uh, he actually talks about this. I can't remember the dead guy's name. Um, I'll look it up, though. Uh, I should be able to find it pretty quickly. It's uh, it's on nuclear energy, but he talks about um, something that I, I ended up digging a lot into after uh, watching this video, and I was just kind of shocked. I was like, holy shit, that's, incre that's incredible. And it's right in line with the idea of the marginal utility, is that the marginal profit, the marginal return on solar and wind energy, uh, I think this statistic was specifically to solar, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's actually worse with wind, um, but that it basically becomes economically unviable or that the marginal utility of new solar panels past a certain point is low enough to essentially be nothing. So basically the idea is that after like 15% of the grid is on solar, every additional solar panel that you put on the grid gives you no net benefit, no economic net benefit to energy uh, energy production. And that's explicitly because it produces energy at the wrong time of day. The highest energy consumption is like between six o'clock in the afternoon and 10 o'clock at night in most places. Obviously it varies and there's fluctuation, but generally that's when it is. The sun has already gone down. Peak production is actually where in one of the zones of lowest demand. It's like noon, one o'clock in the afternoon when solar panels are producing enormous amounts of energy. You have to transfer, you have to transmit that energy like eight hours for it to be viable. And I don't care how many of you think batteries are the solution. There is not enough cobalt, uh, zinc, or lithium on the planet to, cre to even build the number of batteries necessary to make a a useful dent in the fraction of energy that would need to be transported. We would literally mine the resources from the planet before we got to the point where, okay, yeah, we're transmitting 20% of all the solar and wind produced at the wrong time to the time that it's needed to consume, uh, needed to be consumed. And as soon as it's even like slightly successful, if any of it works, the demand for energy is going to go up. So, it's going to out, be outscaled even if it was viable for like a small portion of it right now. Now, at some point, batteries are going to make a huge difference. But solar, wind, and battery is a very low-scale technology. It works incrementally. Uh, incrementally is not the word. It, it works on an individual level. At a very small scale, two, three solar panels on my roof could help me a lot. Batteries in my phone... Are you, I could not live without it. But unlike hashes, unlike Bitcoin hashes, the bigger you get, the more you try to scale up for a single use, 
the less and less useful it is, the less it makes economic sense, and the more the degradation or the uh, the increasing cost versus the the capacity, the demand needed for higher uh, higher energy demand uses. You know, my phone has very very little energy demand, therefore a battery makes sense. Aluminum smelting is is not going to run off of a battery for a hundred years at least, and I hope. That I, that I have come to appreciate just how complicated and rather incredible all of our energy grids and the energy demand dynamics are. That it really does need a whole freaking industry and thousands of different variations of specialists just to make sense of it. It is an environment. It is an ecosystem. And no, no person, no single person, no expert is going to design it better than the natural forces of uh, the natural economic forces will. There's a great quote in this, and I don't remember what this is from. I have absolutely heard this before, but he doesn't have like a source listed. Maybe it's one of Brandon Quittum's other pieces. I don't even know, but I love this quote. Uh, every time I hear it, it kind of makes me giggle. Is Bitcoin mining is everything you don't understand about energy combined with everything you don't understand about Bitcoin. 100%. And unfortunately, those are two uh, very, very dense topics in which the average person is very, very ignorant of. And, and um, uh, unfortunately, they are also all very, very opinionated about the fact that they do know what the hell they're talking about and thus already have figured out the conclusion and know how to fix Bitcoin and the energy grid. And then you mix that with the power of politics and you get profound arrogance and authority to back up that deeply, deeply ignorant opinion. So that is what we are up against. Yay. Um, <laughs> there is, uh, there's another great quote. He actually links to a number of really good pieces in this. One of them is the uh, Bitcoin mining in the case for more energy. I have no idea what number read that is on this show, but we have covered it before. And uh, I will, uh, I'll, Dig that one out and make sure I have it in the show notes. Actually, let me make a note so I don't forget that. Show notes link. And then uh, he also links to, or excuse me, he, uh, I think he takes like a little snippet or writes a couple paragraphs about Nick Carter's piece, No Objectivity on Bitcoin Mining. Also one that we've read on the show. In fact, I half think that I've read every piece that Nick Carter has written about Bitcoin mining and the energy issue on the show, if I'm not mistaken. I feel like I've probably missed one somewhere, but I've done pretty good. So links to those will be in the show notes. But I also, kind of getting back on track here, I also love the comparison to the natural forces in the market. And, uh, and obviously this is one of the reasons why I think the organism style analogy and the idea of treating this like an ecology and an environment and the incentives within that environment. I think it lends like it's not a stretch of the truth. I think it is the truth. You know, the market is a Darwinian competition. It is it is a abstraction of the same evolutionary process of life. That's exactly what we are doing. The market is the process, the natural process of evolution that has created from the natural associations and trades 
an environment that people create when when we turn we become rather than one species or excuse me rather than individuals building our own lives and creating our own things we become a community of organisms a network that is communicating and trading that that individual information and the value and all of the goods and skills that we have produced in order to better our lives as a collective and that this truly came about without our even understanding it like completely naturally with no top-down direction there was no design the dynamics of the market simply existed it they, they simply came into being around the incentives of humans and trading and the different valuations of what we had versus what we needed between individuals it is the same process of biological evolution, except that it doesn't require death of the individual. It's not about people living and dying because it's not a biological evolution. It's an ideation uh, evolution. It's an evolution of skills, of processes, of ideas within the economy. If they fail to implement or be productive, productive value for the economy itself, for the organism of human civilization then it dies. And we as humans simply adjust. We realize that, oh, the degree in this or the skill that I learned to do this is no longer relevant. Therefore, I'm going to learn the skill to do this because this is incredibly relevant and it is insanely valuable for this new environment that we have found ourselves in as we continue to evolve and push forward in our civilization. And, you know, therein lies the hubris of top-down control, of the idea that we're just going to put one expert in the room. And what they're doing is not recreating the market. They're not dictating, quote-unquote, economics. What they're, the hubris of what the political system is trying to do when they control the economy is that they're going to recreate the forces of evolution and improve upon it. It is the idea that they are going to design natural forces that work better than natural forces. We, in our profound arrogance as human beings, develop the slightest amount of political power and we decide that the evolutionary process, which has survived for billions and billions of years and has pushed life into every imaginal environment that has ever occurred on this planet and survived through some of the most chaotic and insane events in the history of the creation of this existence, and which we only began to have a ghost of a comprehension of within the last, like, 200 years, which is barely a grain of sand in the fraction of a fraction of the time in which this process has guided all of life on Earth. Yeah, now that we've figured this out, I'm, I've just discovered evolution. I'm here to fix it. <laughs> I don't know. That's just, that is what political control and uh, manipulation of the economy feels like to me. You know, the market is those natural forces laid out through the, the, the value computation of every single individual that is participating in that system in aggregate with skin in the game across the entire civilization. And one of the parts of this that Brandon Quittam uh, relates to the idea of ecology and how market forces are best understood as kind of evolutionary forces is the example between the moose and the wolves on the uh, Isle Royal. So there's a, there's a whole quote, and this is something that's totally lost in the general economic discussion because somehow it's 
believed or it's become the norm that the government is just there to make bad things go away from the market. And in my opinion, that's a complete failure to, to understand why the market works in the first place. We'll get to there in just a second. Here's the quote. It says, If the wolf doesn't find a meal, it dies. There are no magic potions that revive the wolf. It's necessary for the weakest individuals to be culled to ensure the rest of the population has enough food to survive. If a wizard did revive all of the fallen wolves, they'll eventually eat all the food and lead their own species to extinction. We see this unnatural balance arise when central bankers bail out zombie companies. Sure, you save one company, but you put the entire economy at risk. Rather, we must let the free market settle and recycle capital. This is something that anybody listens to this show, I want so badly to get through, get into the mind of anybody who wants to understand economics and why the free market works. The correction, the crash, the credit crisis is the most important part of the free market, not the reward, the cost. There's a decent argument made that they're equally important because they're, you know, yin and yang, but I genuinely believe that the cost is more important because we have a natural desire to create things and make things better, which means that we will still strive to do things, to innovate, to accomplish, even if you take all of the profit and distribute it and completely bloat and misallocate and distort the markets, but we have a drive to avoid cost at all risk to make cost seemingly disappear as if there is no there is no cost we have the the opposite uh, force to pull us away from cost so if you don't let the market play that out if you don't let that evolutionary force remain we will keep doing stupid things forever this is why america quote unquote capitalist america has been so bastardized that we've used the government as a way to make cost and risk disappear and yet, that's exactly the force that makes us behave in congruence, like in symbiotic with reality. It's why we change our behaviors when things aren't working, when we're not actually producing, when we're destroying value instead. It's because of the cost. If you hide the cost, we just keep destroying resources. Think about it in the 2008 financial crisis, that a company, a, a bank that has been insolvent, that has been completely leveraged to the hilt and has been under the water uh, underwater for 10 years while there is another bank that has actually operated on full reserve and has not leveraged themselves then you have a giant crisis you have a credit crisis because suddenly there's fluctuation in the market and somebody who isn't levered somebody who has full reserves can handle any sort of fluctuation they're going to survive as long as their business model is profitable somebody who's leveraged a hundred to one is going to get demolished. But that's a good thing because that's a bad, stupid way to run a bank. It is destructive. It is risky. And it is putting all of the customers, it is making all of the customers eat the cost of the, uh, of the, of the banking process. The process is destructive. It destroys value and it cannot survive even a decent windstorm. As soon as a little bit of economic weather comes through, the whole institution is destroyed. 
along with everybody's savings, income, hopes and dreams, the, the plans that they had, all of the things that were tied to that financial institution go with it. That is why that behavior must stop because it's real. It matters that they are destroying value. If you bail them out, the behavior never stops. If there is no cost, why would the bank stay, uh, become responsible? What's the pressure? They just got rewarded for destroying resources for a decade. And even worse is the behavior that did allow the good behavior, the responsible behavior that allowed the other bank to weather the storm. They are the ones who ate the cost because they never got the fire sale prices that their savings would allow them to take advantage of. That would reallocate capital from the debtor, from the bank that's leveraged to the end of the earth. That capital is supposed to go, it's supposed to be taken away from that bank and given to the responsible one that survives, that's left over to buy up those customers so that all of the lives of everybody involved is not destroyed. And so that we don't do it again. But instead, the exact opposite happens when you bail them out. When you bail out the irresponsible institution, what do they do? They give giant, uh, giant payouts and bonuses to their CEOs and their executives. They buy up the smaller banks that were actually responsible so that they can actually fix their balance sheet. Therefore, the responsible banks that had not yet scaled up, who would have had a perfect opportunity to, to expand massively by buying up all the poisonous debt that, uh, and, and all the massive resources and workers and everything that the giant irresponsible bank had been consuming and stealing from the market, all of that would have flooded back on at fire sale prices and those small banks would have seen their massive growth opportunity. They would have bought up all that capital. They would have bought up all, the, all those employees. It would have bought up all that nasty debt because they actually had reserves and could handle it and they had responsible business practices and they would be the new big banks. The good behavior would have grown, expanded, and the economy would have stayed in balance. But because of the bailout, the exact opposite happens. They buy up all of the responsible reserve banks and make them irresponsible leveraged banks. And if they had a big competitor who had stayed fully reserved, well, then what do they have to do now? Now, not only did they never get the correction, but all the prices of the housing and the assets that they need to buy to shore up are being bid higher and higher. And because they're not chasing it with leverage, they don't have the access to it. So whereas the, the bank, the irresponsible bank, gets to grow at 2x, 3x for the year because... They don't care if they have reserves. All they need is a loan, and they're going to bid up all the prices of the houses and the stocks and the equities, everything that they're going to accumulate. Well, the, the Reserve Bank actually has a restriction. They can only buy 10% this year. Why? Because they're actually responsible, because they're not destroying resources. They're not consuming a whole bunch of shit that the economy actually needs, that other people actually need, and not producing anything with it. They are actually sustainable. But what happens? That business practice becomes unviable. It means that you simply will be stagnant. You can't grow because inflation is going to chase it higher because all the money that's buying up the resources is debt. It's new low interest loans from the government and from the bailed out institutions that have tons of excess capital to dole out 
and they've got a new great margin that they can now leverage to another 40 to 1. They were 100 to 1, they got bailed out, now they're 5 to 1. Let's go right back to 101. The free market doesn't work if you do not have cost and reward. A bailout is the total and complete destruction of free market forces. The removal of bad practices and irresponsible business behavior is crucial. The very reason we have a market is to make sure resources find their most productive and valuable use. If you take an institution that was using up a trillion freaking resources and has actually just been burning through them, has been consuming, has been leveraging themselves, and there's no actual value being produced, that is a trillion dollars that is destroying society instead of growing it. And that means actual resources. That means actual human labor that is going to enable the forces of society, of the economic system, to eat itself. It's literally like a body that begins eating its own muscles and bone and uh, uh, organs in order to survive. That is what our economy does when we prop up bad business, when the entire process of the political system is to take look at all the bad behavior in the places where companies are going out of business and where things are unprofitable and to prop them up, to bail out the giant irresponsible banks. That is the process. It is eating your own muscle to make yourself grow. I don't know, this is why I think the natural, the natural forces argument is, or the, the idea of an ecology, of thinking of the economy and the market itself as, as an environment, as a, as a natural ecosystem, and understanding it from the layer of incentives is the most enlightening. It is the most illustrative. It is the one that I think is the absolute closest to society. We are an organism with incredibly incredibly complex pieces so much so that if you don't actually have each cell doing its job and having skin in the game and making its own market decisions you're going to kill the organism it doesn't the system literally doesn't work what we need to do is take advantage of evolution and create systems create foundations that allow the natural forces to take hold so that they can do their job this is why I think Bitcoin is such a, is a, it's a, it's a return to the natural forces, to the natural uh, uh, dynamics of the market environment. What it does is it protects, the, it protects society from the cancer of central control, of top-down micromanagement, trying to, trying to manipulate and maneuver the forces of the market in order to have some desired outcome. When the whole idea of wanting an outcome, the whole idea of valuing an outcome and trying to figure out which outcome is most valuable is something that we can only know in relation to the market. Without skin in the game, we don't know the value of anything. That's what we talked about in John Vallis's piece when we got into the uh, Money Messiah that you know we just published on the show, is that the foundation of meaning is in the ability to value things and the, the foundation of valuing a thing is comparative. It is because of the cost. It is because of the sacrifice that we made in the past to achieve something that we know what it is worth. We know what we would trade for it. 
if you take that sacrifice out, then what we want is meaningless. Our ability to value the things that we desire, we desire infinitely. We want everything and all the things all the time. It is explicitly because of the trade-off that allows us to create a hierarchy where I know X is something I desire more because it's something I'm willing to truly devote 10, 20 days worth of grueling work toward, whereas the other sounds like something great to have, but as soon as I've done an hour of work toward it, I'm like, eh, I don't really need that. Like, this way, I think, I think it was Money Messiah, actually, that in, in the guy's take, I was talking about a yacht, is that if you don't know the cost, if you don't know the relative sacrifice it took you to get that, like, if you ask me right now, do you want a yacht? I'd be like, yeah, that'd be freaking great. But if you ask me, do I want to do all of the work day in and day out necessary to produce the value in order to acquire a yacht, like a giant multi-million dollar yacht that I can travel the world on, I'm not really that into boats. Really just kind of sounds like a great way to lose Bitcoin to me. Sure, I'll go on Instagram and yacht life looks great, but that's when I could just get it for free. But if I had a yacht, probably wouldn't even use it that much. But that is a rather dumb and very simplistic idea of why it is that we cannot value something without the cost. If there is nothing on the line, then the value of the reward is meaningless. This is why the second that you create a game in which you have to stake something, in which you have to gamble something on the outcome, the behavior of the players changes drastically. And that's even when it's a small amount of money. The trade-off is what makes us able to understand value and create value hierarchies, comparative values, in the first place. So anyway, that's why politics doesn't work. I think that's what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I was, it was uh, on why ecology and why incentives in thinking of the civilization and the economy as a market, or excuse me, as an uh, environment, as an ecological system, I think is the most enlightening, I think is the accurate way to look at it. Um, but going all the way back to actually the whole point of this article and the discussion is Bitcoin mining is a pioneer species. It is a new technology. It is a new value creation system that can inhabit entirely new areas. And there's another major part of this puzzle, um, uh, which is another quote, actually, that I highlighted from this. He talks about how the primary cost is energy. The, the hardware is obviously an upfront cost, but the operation, the actual act of producing an economic output is about actually just running the machines and the number, the only real ongoing cost. Obviously, there's lots of little miscellaneous and things around it. But irrelevant, the major resource cost is energy. That is the ultimate decider of whether or not you are profitable versus the payout of your hashes. So it incentivizes miners to find the cheapest source. Where can you get energy that nobody else wants? That is the biggest, that is one of the most important keys to this. And there's a great quote from this section. It says, Usually, this means Bitcoin miners seek out non-rival energy or energy that would otherwise be wasted. In fact, Bitcoin doesn't waste energy. It often converts otherwise wasted energy into a highly liquid digital commodity. Not to mention the Bitcoin miners 
pay for the energy, which by definition means it's not wasted. And this is something that is so critical, that so much of our energy production is wasted. Bitcoin mining is, is literally a technology, it is a pioneer species that can consume in a profitable manner all of that, all of that wasted energy where no other, no other source of demand can. Contrary to the popular fallacy that Bitcoin wastes energy, is that Bitcoin may be able to consume all of the already wasted energy. And by being a buyer of last resort, going back to that example I gave from uh, the guy who had the talk on nuclear, is that solar power like maxes out at like 15% of the grid, where the more solar panels you put on, you don't get any extra additional um, economically viable output. That changes when you add in Bitcoin mining. Now, every new panel you add on, even if it doesn't perfectly line up with demand, you've got a buyer of last resort. You've got a Bitcoin miner that will happily take every watt you can produce. It changes that statistic meaningfully. And there is nothing else that actually can. It might be the single key. Bitcoin may be the very thing that makes multiple poorly scalable renewable energies actually able to scale. And in doing so, that is going to completely change the dynamics for energy. And wherever the, the market, wherever the, the political structures allow that to naturally develop, man, they are going to be sinners for unbelievable prosperity and progress. And all the countries that deny it, that try to shut it down, are essentially going to be doubling down on the I'm going to eat my own muscles and my own tissue in order to grow idea. And they are going to atrophy and they are going to stagnate in one of the most crucial elements and industries in society. And he talks about that. That's in the case for more energy as well as um, he hits in this article and we've talked about it numerous times on the show is the connection between standard of living between GDP, the value and production of society, and the, the condition and the prosperity of the lives of those within that society, the deep connection to the amount of energy they are able to utilize. There is no future in which society is better or more, pro more prosperous in which we use less energy. And the countries that embrace it that realize what a benefit this can be and allow, uh, allow those natural forces to work for them are going to explode. They are going to grow and prosper like no other. The seeds of citadels will be planted all across their lands and they will be the apex predator of the future if the modern world turns out to reject one of the most important energy innovations that's come in a century, maybe even more. So, with that, I think we're going to close this one out. It's ranted for a long time. It's late as balls. What time is it? Oh, Jesus, it's after midnight. All right. Um, I'm going to close this one out. Uh, thank you to uh, everybody who listens. Thank you to Fold, to Swan Bitcoin, to Bitbox, and to the Bitcoin 2022 conference. They all make this show happen, and they are uh, my seriously some of my favorite products and services in this space. 
Um, I use them all. I don't, I don't know if I use my Bitcoin. I guess I use my Bitcoin 2022 tickets, but I, I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin Magazine. I love my fold card. Swan Bitcoin is stacking all the freaking time. I actually stacked today. And, uh, and then my Bitbox. Like, like I said, I got to keep that shit safe. Don't forget to check them all out. Discounts, goodies, uh, special links, all that fun stuff in the show notes. Uh, plus links to hopefully all of the things I mentioned in the guys take here for uh, further digging into this topic. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you for subscribing. This is Bitcoin Audible. I will catch you all tomorrow with another episode. And until then, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.